Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, my name is Alan Moore and you're listening to Gaelic Games Europe's twice-weekly podcast, This Sunday's Game. A very warm welcome to This Sunday's Game. As Dean Rock is criticised in Ireland for giving tips on kicking freeze, we're going to tip up to Luxembourg and kick freely with Marie-Therese Dockery. Of course, MT, as she's known to us, is our Central Council Delegate and she has been working with the GAA and World GAA in harmonising rules and regulations for all international units. We're going to ask her how she ended up in Luxembourg and also just what lies ahead for Gaelic Games in Europe. But first, a bit of news. A couple of weeks ago on this Sunday's game, Saoirse McCarthy of Cork told us that the scrapping of the minor championship by the Camogie Association was damaging. A former Wexford player, Elaine Aylward, went on to say that it was a huge loss, that it could have been run off, though the schedule is tight, but as she said, a lot of these girls might have made the breakthrough to senior. It could be the one chance to play for their county. Now, answering that, the Uchtaran of the Camogie Association, Kathleen Wood, said that the decision was not taken lightly. She told RTE that our number one focus was on the clubs. Clubs are the heart and backbone of our association, so they took priority. She said that we knew it wasn't going to be possible to fulfill all our fixtures, so sadly we had to cut the fixture list. And it wasn't just the minors. And staying with women's sport, the WNBA returned last night in Florida. Now the league and players had taken a decision that they would honour the life of Breonna Taylor. The 26-year-old was shot accidentally by police in her home in Louisville, Kentucky this past March. But the players decided not to take a knee, but instead to walk off the court just as the anthem began. New York Liberty's Laisha Clarendon said that we thought that was very fitting to do a moment of recognition, not a moment of silence, because we're not being silent by any means. She would not to say that the WNBA players felt that kneeling during the anthem was becoming a little bit performative. She said that kneeling doesn't even feel like enough to protest. I don't want to hear the anthem. I don't want to stand out there. I don't want to be anywhere near it because it's ridiculous that justice and freedom are not offered to everybody equally. And we head now to Luxembourg to meet with our Central Council Delegate, Marie-Therese Dockery. I'm delighted to welcome on to this Sunday's game someone who I wanted to get on quite a while before. Uh, she is one of the leading lights in Gaelic Games in Europe. Of course, she is our link to the top table in Crow Park, along with our chairperson, Marie Trace Dockery. A very warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alan. We must have uh, very dim lights in uh, Europe if I'm one of the leading ones. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Uh, listen, Marie-Therese, um, first of all, I just want to ask you, how come you ended up in Luxembourg? I went to the University of Limerick and I did a four-year degree there. And one of the reasons that I went to Limerick um, in the first place was because in the third year, you do a cooperative education experience or an Erasmus placement, depending on the course. And I really wanted to do, have that, I suppose it was kind of the, the X factor over other courses. In that third year, I went to Luxembourg. So my choice at the time was Dublin, the Isle of Man or Luxembourg. Didn't really want to go to Dublin. Didn't want to go to the Isle of Man. Maybe I'll live to regret that, who knows. <laughs> and I didn't know where Luxembourg really was. And I thought, sure, I'll go there. Uh, so I went there and I spent uh, nine months there. I went back the following year for the summer, worked again, and I came back to Ireland, trained as a chartered accountant. I did my three and a half years and as 
soon as that time was up, was back in Luxembourg within two weeks of my contract there uh, finishing up. So yeah, there since. But most people kind of go, it's this kind of like little fairy tale kingdom or something like something out of a Peter Sellers movie. I was just going to say, it's like a magical, mystical place. I love it. I hope that people who live there do love it. I don't know. Does anyone love it as much as I do? I really love the fact that you're in a city, in a country that's bordered by France, by Belgium, by Germany. You can be in any of those in such a short space of time. Within half an hour, you can be in any of those countries. Um, you could be in all of them within an hour if you did a road trip around. Uh, you can be, you're in Central Europe. Uh, you can be in the Netherlands in a couple of hours. You can be, I don't know, you can fly to Spain, Portugal. You know, people think very little of traveling away for a weekend. The country itself, it's a very beautiful country. 60% of the, of the country is forestry. There's, there's huge forests, there's lovely forest and nature trails around the country. The city itself is quite small. There's 110,000 people in the city. Um, and then it's just a beautiful city. Um, there's the old town and the new town and lots of hills and fortifications and casemates dating back to war times. There's a it's like steeped in history of how Luxembourg came about. There's actually a video circulating on the internet at the moment. It's quite popular of why Luxembourg exists. The really interesting story of how it was colonised and who claimed it and when they claimed it but just as a kind of a city and a way of life I just I really like it it's um, very internationally diverse 70% of the population of the city are non-Luxembourgers uh, so you've got huge huge internationalisation within the city you know there's, there's French Spanish Portuguese huge Portuguese community in Luxembourg all around Europe the US um, everywhere yeah I just really like it it's, it's a small city, a small country, it suits me. Um, and like from Leitrim uh, at home, I have Roscommon within a couple of hundred metres of the house and Longford is half a mile up the road. So I suppose Luxembourg is a bit like that with France, Germany and Belgium. Uh, in Luxembourg at the moment, because you're involved with the, uh, the GA club there in Luxembourg, um, what kind of range of nationalities have you got? Maybe? Like any GA club around the world, You'll have a certain number of Irish people and I suppose Irish people gravitate towards GA clubs or cultist groups or different Irish associations when they go away from home. It's just a home away from home and a community that's already there that you can quite easily walk into. I think that's one of the great things about the GA worldwide. That you, you know, it is a community that's there for people um, away from home. But in Luxembourg, we'd have, uh, there's Australians, um, Americans. Every year it's, you know, you've got people come and going because it's it's quite um yeah, it's a transient place where people would come, spend a couple of years and go off again. Um so you do have a lot of people coming and going. There's Germans, French, Belgians. When I trained our ladies football team five or six years ago, we had maybe seven or eight different nationalities. Um Swiss and Swedish, American. So I suppose your Irish would always kind of be the backbone. But again, within that, that changes as well every year. Like I said, uh, UL have uh, co-op uh, students there every year. Um, DCU have sent students before, but, uh, Queen's and Belfast have sent students. So they come and go for a year. They might come back then, like I do. A lot of people have returned um, after they finish university or after a few years, come back to Luxembourg. For a championship, you know, <laughs> Luxembourg could have a great team one year, be flying in the 
in the Benelux Championship and in the European Championship and the next year maybe not and it might be the turn of Belgium or it might be the term, turn of Amsterdam and then it, it swings and roundabouts. Where a lot of other places we're talking about having this stable large local population whether it be in Berlin or, or Munich all picked then from locals in Luxembourg. Yeah, well, I suppose I shouldn't dismiss the work that's going on in Luxembourg in terms of putting together structure and having a solid base and bringing in recruitment. Like the, that is going on as it is everywhere. Um, it's just, I suppose, Luxembourg, given its population as country and the, the people that you're picking from, there is the transient nature of it. Um, maybe you're more exposed to it in Luxembourg than you are in other places where you have just a higher population mass and maybe even Irish people are more settled in places like Brussels where you've got a huge number of the European institutions are there and people are there for a fixed term or know that they're there for a longer term. And just moving on, of course, you are our Central Council Delegate for GGE and also you're working with, uh, especially when we're developing the uh, World GAA. Can you just tell us what was happening in the GAA? Because there was going to be some huge moves put in during a convention, but unfortunately, either time or net or whatever, we, we, you know, kind of things were pushed back a wee bit. Well, I suppose I served as secretary in Europe um, before coming Central Council delegate and secretary of the club before that. And the official guide, as it is for the GEA and for LGFA and for the Mogi Association, I mean, they've evolved over time. Or when first written, it was never envisaged that you would have international units competing um, and playing the GEA abroad, that you'd have... Argentina, that you'd have South Africa, that you'd have India, that you'd have Europe, that you'd have the Middle East, and that you'd have all of those places. And the official guide maybe isn't fit for purpose for those units in a sense that if you're to follow the official guide to the letter of the law, it can be quite punitive. And where in Ireland you have a one-match ban or whatever for a red card or two-match ban or whatever, or a number of weeks what that means for us in Europe, where we have, we run off our championships over the course of maybe 10 or 12 weeks in Benelux, um, and you're playing one day tournaments as opposed to one match tournaments, things like that become much more of an issue, transfers uh, become an issue. So the whole idea was to bring about some change to the official guide by actually inserting World GEA as a, as a body um, into the official guide and then by doing that, allowing it to come out of the official guide in a certain sense, by that World GA would have its own constitution. And under that constitution, then the international units could sign up to and kind of operate under their own uh, constitutions, then in line with the official guide or else out of line with the official guide, but as allowed uh, by this. So unfortunately, we didn't get everything that we wanted to uh, get done at Congress uh, just gone in February, but hopefully now in Congress next February, um, assuming um, everything goes to plan and it all goes ahead, we'll get that um, into the official guide so that World GA will be in the official guide. It'll have representation on Central Council, which is the decision-making body between Congresses, and World GA will be able to bring motions um, to the floor of Congress. And then with that, that... World GA will have a constitution. Um, but we did get into the official guide in February, which maybe was seen as minor, um, but actually is, is quite significant for international units, is that the aims of the association now recognise that the GEA is the international governing body 
of the association um, and all of that goes to helping international units around the world in terms of their funding um, locally in their own countries or um, in terms of gaining recognition with bodies um, and explaining who the GEA is and how they fit under the GEA because at the moment if you think about it you know we're in Europe say which is and we say Europe but it's really continental Europe it's Europe without the UK and Ireland um, and you look you say that we're bound by the official guide but the official guide if you look at it, it really only refers to Ireland and Britain and you're kind of confused as to how Europe which is bigger in terms of geographical expanse than Ireland and the UK is subservient to Ireland and UK's official guide so it was kind of important to get that in there. So yeah, it was. I was asked to go on a committee by uh, Duke Theron, John Horn. John had been uh, chairperson of Leinster Council before becoming president, and we are twinned. Um, European GA is twinned with Leinster Council, who have been very supportive over the years. But John would have been aware that we had issues with different rules in the official guide and the different issues that we had in terms of recognition and trying to gain recognition in our countries and in the continent of Europe and explain who European GA was in the context of the, in the overall context. Um, so John asked me to go on the committee. Um, Niall Erskine, who's chair of World GA, which is um, established um, under John, he is uh, there, Liam Keane, um, who's chair of the Rules Advisory Committee, and then Larry McCarthy, the incoming um, president of the GA, is on that committee as well. So hopefully we can continue the work that we have been doing over the last couple of years and get it over the line then in Congress. That will be cut down, though, under the, the new rules, correct? Yeah, I suppose as things currently stand and as what's envisaged back in February, um, that was the intention. Um, maybe that didn't really sit right with people and I can understand various reasons why. And even my first Congress, um, not that long ago, actually, in, in Cavan back in, I think, 2015, 2016, there was a motion on the floor that day to cut back the representation of international units as well, back to two um, delegates per per unit. Um, and at the moment, uh, counties are entitled to two delegates per unit and one for every 10 clubs that they have subject to a maximum of 10 delegates. So in Europe, because we have 90 odd clubs, you know, we're entitled um, under rule to nine delegates. Uh, you have Cork, Dublin, uh, Galway, you know, big counties like that, they're entitled to their about nine or 10 delegates. So I suppose, are we on a par with those counties in terms of what they've done uh, and what they are doing for the association or not? Um, and people would be reluctant to go back. And as I said, in Cavan, um, there was that motion and I spoke against it and I was um, against cutting back delegate numbers uh, and I would be against cutting back delegate numbers for international units where it's stifling their growth or aiming to quieten international units um, and not give them a voice at Congress, which I think it's very important they have. But then on the flip side, putting World GA into rule, allowing it to have representation on Central Council and allowing World GA as a body to bring motions to the floor of Congress. I mean, that's the trade-off that, you know, before you were being stripped of your your vote or um, not having delegates at Congress, but you weren't getting anything in return. And by getting this in return, by getting World GA in return, you'd hope that you'd be stronger together and you'd have a stronger place when you're in rule than outside rule. So I don't think it's um, cutting back delegate numbers is necessarily a bad thing. I think it's just about doing it in the right way and marrying it in the in the right way with different things and um, the reduction in delegate numbers isn't as severe or wasn't going to be as severe as was 
um, put forward there a number of years ago in Cavan and even before that again. Uh, so Canterbury International Units will still be represented, will still have strong representation in their own terms and they will also have World GA as well. And there are plans then for World GA to become a mini uh, Congress around Congress um, and to have um, a more effective decision making uh, body and power there within that. We don't have a huge cash base. We don't have games development officers. You know, it, and it's it's not just about the 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 cash. It's about what you can do with cash. And you know, I suppose the goal would be to have games development officers around Europe um, promoting the growth of games. And we're very lucky that we have such a strong uh, volunteer base around Europe um, and people promoting the games in schools and in universities more than yourself around Europe and that we have that but I suppose to, to grow and to continue to grow and to bring it to the next level and to bring it to the say the local communities and to make sure that the clubs are strong there um, and that they're not reliant on the transient Irish coming and going and um, that you'd have that um, I suppose then we have the geographical issues in Europe and um, get into tournaments and um, we have our European Championships which brings all of the, the countries together um, which is a huge feat to pull off it's all, it's a huge commitment by clubs uh, to be able to travel to places you have your local championships as well like in Luxembourg we have the Benelux Championship which is Belgium, Netherlands Luxembourg and maybe a German club or two thrown into that and you're travelling even within that you're still travelling huge distances that you don't have in Ireland and um, you have the language issue that you don't have in Ireland where there's so many different languages we you know yourself Alan from yeah. our management um, committee and our county committee all the different nationalities that we have um, and the different native languages that people speak so it all brings uh, different challenges and it's the same in every international unit around the world but also different in every international unit around the world you know there's no one size fits all for everyone um, outside of Ireland and the UK everyone has their own different challenges and different ways of doing things and I suppose that's the great thing um, about the GEA that it's not uh, stagnant and it is ever changing and that there are so many so many people playing it and there's so many different cultures involved in it that it's not just it's a promotion of Irish culture and Irish sport abroad obviously but it's also bringing different cultures together and marrying all of that so it's, it's, The number of people involved uh, from different backgrounds, different nationalities, um, we can honestly say it's a great leveler and it sort of brings people together. So it's a really, I, I think it's, a, you know, it's, it's vitally important, especially for when you're living abroad, when you're kind of, well, we are kind of diaspora now at this stage, to kind of feel that connection with home, but at the same time that we know that we can go to a tour or to a, to a club and meet someone, it doesn't matter what, if they're Irish or Belgian, Luxembourg or, or Russian, we know that we can talk to them on the same level. So it's great to see Irish people playing the sport abroad and to bring this, bring in the sport to different countries and different nations, and that is fantastic. But it's also fantastic to see local communities embracing the sport and making it their own and being so passionate about it. And I suppose one of the key standouts for me in Europe, and uh, one way that I realised success of the GEA in Europe was. Four or five years ago, I was down in uh, Santiago 
in um, Galicia. There was a tournament uh, being held there, a first round of the Pan-European Championships being held there. And there was a game between two um, of the local sides. It was a ladies football game, uh, Strada and perhaps Santiago. I can't um, actually remember, but I've never seen rivalry uh, like it. And like I said, like I'm from the border of Roscommon and Leitrim here and like there's no rivalry I, I had thought that there was no rivalry like Roscommon and Leitrim even in the championship in the June time but this was another level and you see the passion that these people are playing our sport with and you realise it's not our sport it's a sport for everyone it's it's incredible that this is how far the GA has come and I think that's a great legacy for the GA to have that you have communities that you would never think of playing the sport and playing it with such passion and such pride and being so proud of it and promoting it in their countries and in their regions and what they've done in Galicia over the last number of years has been huge like they have two or three Irish people playing and they have 14 clubs in Galicia there's hundreds playing in Galicia and there's two or three Irish people playing you know you have locals playing like that's a huge success story to have that's a great legacy for European GA to have but the GA in general to have and that's the same then around the world with other international units like I said you have India you have Argentina you know you see it with the world games I suppose yeah the the festival of cultures and the festival of nations and the festival of clubs around the world that that is and that was that's huge and it's it's growing and um, there have been three world games so far and hopefully there will be another one and that that will be possible to go ahead and um, you brought up an account committee meeting um about what do we do with sterilising footballs? Uh, what happens with this and so on and so forth? It, it kind of, I, I was listening to it and I kind of was like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I never thought of it. And now we're seeing that this is de rigueur. This is what everyone has to do. Has it surprised you the way that coronavirus has kind of like taken over everything that we're doing within GGE? If you're to disregard the conspiracy theories and you go with that somebody ate a bat or ate bat soup or whatever it is in China, you think of the last meal that you have, uh, that you had. Do you think that that's going to change the world forever? <laughs> no, you don't. And one person eats one thing and suddenly the whole world changes. And it's, I don't think any of us ever envisaged um, that this would be as serious as it was. And you, you remember when we were at Congress in February and we were sitting in the Croke Park Hotel on the Sunday morning or the Saturday night. And then on Sunday morning, we realised that, you know, the first case um, had come to Ireland. And it was kind of a bit of a humorous aspect to it at the time, um, which in hindsight, you know, we're definitely not laughing about it now. Uh, but it was it was novel, I suppose. And, you know, we heard about China going into lockdown, Wuhan going into lockdown. And we thought, wow, that will never happen here. And all of a sudden, it very quickly was the case. Like, I went back to Luxembourg on the 1st of March. And on the 12th of March, we went into lockdown over there. And you had a very sharp increase in case numbers in Luxembourg and then around Europe and that county committee meeting that we had which was I think very early March yeah I I did ask a question and very stupid I was like sorry now to be really stupid and ask a stupid question but like can we spread this by passing a football and what do we do do we disinfect footballs or do people wear gloves or what do we do and I think you know we made a call very early on in Europe and before the GA had made their call in Ireland about postponing activities that we were going to postpone activities and I don't think everyone took a very responsible attitude towards things and said you know we don't know what this is we don't know how it can be passed on 
and we don't want to put our players at risk. Um, like I said, you know, in Benelux even, we're travelling from Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg and a couple of the German clubs together for one day tournaments. You're meeting a couple of hundred people, you know, you can't take the risk that one person has it or might have it and spreads it to those people by sharing water bottles, sharing footballs, showers, changing rooms, all of these different things, which, you know, it, I think it just has really changed the world forever. So I had porridge for my breakfast this morning and I really hope that that porridge, you know, doesn't change the world for everyone forevermore. But it's a scary thought. That's- February. How far do you think Gaelic games can go in Europe? To quote uh, Leo Varadkar, quoting Mean Girls, there are no limits. Uh, there is no limit. I think we can go as far as we want to go and how far we want to go and how far we can make ourselves go. And that's not a smart answer to the question. It's it's just, there really are no limits as to how Gaelic games can grow um, around. Like we have the 90 odd clubs, you see yourself, yeah. that, you know, there's new clubs coming every couple of months and it's great uh, that they're there. I suppose it's about creating sustainability in the clubs that we have and in the regions that we have. And in a way, coronavirus has been a positive in uh, that side for us because we're now looking at having uh, regional championships more and more and having more more frequent um, tournaments and games played in those regions and bringing about regionalisation, which will help them to build up the structures. Uh, you have stronger regions, which will feed into a stronger European um, base. Um, like everything, you know, we need more funding to be able to do a lot of the things that we're doing and we can't rely on volunteers forever to do things that we are doing like in France where huge growth has gone about uh, there in schools and where Gaelic Games is on the curriculum in schools in France and has been for a number of years that's huge and probably people don't realise that in Ireland and you know to think that there are kids French kids learning how to play Gaelic Games is huge but you know to be able to to bring that um, into all schools in France or into more schools or into secondary schools or into universities you probably do need to have games development officers there promoting it and based in the region so I suppose we can go as far as we allow ourselves to go and as far as we are allowed to go within our own constraints Um, Just to end off on something well I think it's probably the toughest question to hold out how cool was it to (laughs) how cool was it to meet Adrian Dunbar? That was very cool but to be fair as you know I'm not a morning person I'm more of a night owl and uh, I'd had a bit of an issue with my flight uh, coming into Ireland and then I'm, I thought that was the worst thing that could happen to me that year um, for this year, which turns out hasn't been. But um, So we met Adrian on the Friday morning of Congress, yeah. right? Yeah, I so I'm sitting having yeah. my breakfast and I've flown, yeah, I was awake since I think 3am Yeah, and had flown from London to Dublin and went down for my breakfast and I'm sitting and I'm like, hmm that guy over there looks very familiar um, and sure enough yeah it was Adrian Dunbar who very happily uh, he was delighted I'm sure to get into a photo with myself and himself once he realised who we were you know he was like let me have a photo guys so I mean at least he had that um, treasure now forever and probably framed on his mantelpiece yeah, but it, it was very cool and I uh, yeah I think he's a fantastic actor I watched uh, that series then afterwards that he had been filming and obviously Man of Duty is line of duty it's in a league of its own so yeah pretty cool it was probably yeah. uh, it was the highlight for me that day anyway it, it, it was it was one of the things where there were so many people you know milling around the Co-Park Hotel uh, breakfast table including delegates 
you know, like you know, like candidates, I should say, for for um, for the presidency, and then um, you know, four people from Get Games Europe, Liz, myself, well, three, sorry, yourself, myself, and uh, Tony Weeks are like, can you get a photo with us? And he's like, okay, we're the only people who actually asked him for a photo. The only people who in the format. The only people bold like, enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I think I, I think he was he was as you said. I think he was proud to be taking pictures with us, like you know. So, um, oh, look, he looked back on that in years to come and say, "Wow, how lucky I was <laughs> that I got photos with Gail Games Europe." <laughs> I was there. I knew those people before they were really famous. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> yes, Mary, sorry. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, thank you, Alan. Look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, good luck. Yeah, to please, God. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. As the final whistle blows on this episode of this Sunday's game, we'd like to thank Mary Trace for her time and wish her and Luxembourg the very best of luck for the season ahead. We'll be back, of course, on Wednesday. So until then, take care of yourselves and each other.